As they make their way to junior church, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 13. And we are going to make our way to Luke 13 in a moment. And you're welcome to turn on uh, to Luke 13 in your Bibles that you brought with you. Uh, or a smartphone or tablet maybe you're using. Or certainly I have the text in the, in the sermon manuscript if you're one of those that follow along that way. I will tell you I'm going to... Um, and be cutting some things from the manuscript, though you could read it all later, the parts I skip over. And I'm going to tell you, if you are using the Pew Bibles, if you don't bring your Bible, and maybe you're not into the smartphone apps or anything like that, the Pew Bible, Luke 13, we're going to be looking at on page page 819. So if you get to page 819, you can find the scripture right there. I want to comment on a few other things. Uh, His Mercy is More, a beautiful song, and that's one of the ones by the Gettys. If you've been uh, heard in Christ Alone, um, Keith Getty and Stuart Townsend wrote that, and Keith Getty was also part of uh, His Mercy is More. I don't know if he was a soul writer or just one of the people who, who helped with that, but beautiful song with beautiful words. And, I'm, and we've done that one uh, here before, but I'm glad to uh, take part in worshiping the Lord through that song again today. We're in a new series that I started two weeks ago, uh, dealing with life's difficulties. And some of these sermons are specific difficulties, uh, real-life difficulties. Others, as in a a few weeks, they won't be necessarily as much uh, a difficulty, but maybe a conundrum. Today, we're going to get into the subject of a real-life difficulty, a conundrum that we can't make sense of sometimes in our head. And as we start that, I just want to share, sometimes we make our own difficulties, Sometimes we allow ourselves, and we, we, I'm using we on purpose, to be stressed about things that really we ought not be stressed about. Those trained in counseling, as I've had several courses in counseling, uh, pastoral counseling specifically, and read articles on counseling every week, a lot, a lot of counseling really is listening to people and responding and, and kind of letting them hear from another person what they're stressed about. So... You can reflect back on them and say, so just to make sure I'm understanding correctly, uh, you are stressed because of such. And when they hear it from someone else, they think, oh, you're right. I probably really shouldn't be so stressed about that. But a lot of times stress is, 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 doesn't always make sense. A lot of times anger, what we're angry about, doesn't really make sense. It can help having somebody reflect that back on him. I knew a pastor when I was serving in Alliance. I was part of a pastor's group. We met Alliance friends with the pastor there, and we were talking, and one pastor shared how they would test their elders. Now, the Bible says to test elders. In 1 Timothy 3, it says, let them be tested first. And, and we said, what do you test them for? He said they test them for anger as well as a few other things. In other words, if they had someone who they thought was going to be an elder in a year or two, they would observe them and observe their conduct when they were out of their comfort zone. They would take them on an overseas mission trip, and they would be out of their comfort zone. How are they responding? Are they getting angry? Are they lashing out at people? You know, things like that. Well, the sanctuary, they were renovating their sanctuary, and they were trying to discern at that particular church uh, whether they were going to have pews or chairs. The pastor told me in this meeting, me and a few others, he said, I could care less whether it's pews or chairs. But one possible elder, he was being tested to be an elder, came in to talk to him and said, I'd like to talk to you about something. He said, okay. The guy made his case. We have to have pews in a sanctuary. We can't have chairs. 
So the pastor kind of played devil's advocate with them. Why? Why do they have to be pews instead of chairs? Remember, the pastor said he could care less, but he was trying to hear him make his case, and the guy got just very, very angry, slams his fist on the table or the desk. They have to be pews. And I envision, as I think about that, and I think about things that I've been stressed over before and maybe even allow myself to get angry about and probably will again. And I'll probably have to repent of things that I get angry about in the future that really don't even matter. And I'm gonna go before the Lord someday. And as a divine, awesome counselor, the ultimate judge, he's gonna say, so, you know, during this particular incident, you got angry and even yelled and even said insulting comments. Even robbed your peace and others over this. Pews versus chairs. So sometimes we make our own difficulties. Today we're going to look at a subject, though, where it's not us making our own difficulties. It's not us getting angry and upset and anxious over something that really doesn't matter. We're going to look at something today of the suffering of the innocent. The suffering of the innocent. And Jesus was asked about that in Luke chapter 13. And I have to be honest, you know, as I will circle back to this at the end of the sermon, it's something that I've struggled with. How, how do we make sense of the death of the innocent or not just the death, the suffering? Sometimes it's easier to make sense of the death of the innocent than the suffering of the innocent. How do we make sense of this? When we, when we watch it in, in a day and age, we have 24-hour news and we see people really suffering, really struggling across our own United States, but especially over the world, around the world. I'm reminded even right now as I, as, I, as I speak of a guy named Chuck Templeton. When Billy Graham was starting out in the 1940s and Billy Graham was speaking before thousands through Youth for Christ in what became the Billy Graham Crusades later on, but he was preaching and a co-worker at preaching in England with him was Charles Templeton. Charles Templeton. Charles Templeton also preached the gospel in front of thousands and thousands of people. Then he saw... A scandalous picture on the front of Life magazine of a little girl in Africa dying for lack of water. Later, Charles Templeton was interviewed by Lee Strobel in the book The Case for Faith. And he said, who controls the water? God controls the water. That made him turn on his faith. That made him turn on his faith. He became agnostic, which means believes that God cannot be known. And later, when he was interviewed by Lee Strobel, and he was asking him about faith in Christ, he said that he missed Jesus. He missed his relationship with Jesus. But he turned because of suffering, the suffering of the innocent or the supposed innocent, Certainly, we would generally think of a child as being innocent. Although, as I'll share here in a little bit, God has given us and the world a certain element of free will, and he causes or allows all things, and ultimately, we cannot answer a lot of these questions, why he doesn't intervene here and does there. We do know that he's given free will, and most of the issues of starving, 
lack of food or lack of water and stuff over around the world are not caused by God. They're caused by humans. They're caused by men and women hoarding resources and things like that. I'll just share that, that part right now. But this has been a faith challenge for many people. And I've, over the last, especially 18 or 20 years, especially then, have dived into and looked into apologetics, the defenses of the gospel, the defenses of the Bible, better answers to these types of questions. And, you know, by way of introduction... Think about this. A little boy's legs were not developing as they ought. The pediatrician told his parents that their son needed to wear a leg brace, which would help to position the legs and feet to grow properly. The parents wanted to do the, the, parents wanted to do the right thing for their son, but they were miserable following the doctor's orders. The bar held the little, the little boy's feet and legs completely straight and unbendable. Each night when his parents would put the brace on and put him to bed, he would cry from discomfort and from his dislike of it. The little boy was sure to have felt hurt that his parents would treat him wrongly and possibly even doubted their love for him. The mother was at times tempted to take off the bar, but resisted because she felt in her heart that she was doing the right thing for her son. She knew this is hard now, but it's a right thing long term. As difficult as this was, the doctor, the mother, and the father did what they did because of their concern and their thought for his future well-being years down the road. They were willing to sacrifice convenience now for a better life later. God cares for his children. Right now, God might use means of restraint and discomfort to achieve his desired result. But he operates out of the love he has for us. We don't always know why God does the things he does. But as I I will share more later on, tribulation and hardship brings endurance and perseverance and patience and builds us up. Sometimes it's not for us. Sometimes it's for others around us. And sometimes it might be even for a whole community. We don't always know. We can't always answer these questions. So my theme today is how are we to make sense of the death of the innocent or the suffering of the innocent, such as children? How are we to make sense of this? And in the passage we're going to look at, which is Luke chapter 13, we see moral and natural evil. Moral and natural evil. Pilate killed people, and that is moral evil. Pilate killed people, and that is moral evil. That is Pilate intentionally being the evil, wicked man that he was. That is moral evil. The tower fell on people, and that is natural evil. And we're going to see both uh, mentioned in this text. So we're going to look at this. Let's look at context first. We're going to be looking at Luke 13, 1 through 5 here. And uh, so... Jesus right now is traveling and he's talking with the people as he's on his road to Jerusalem. Jesus set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And as I shared a few weeks ago, and I will share again, this is Luke chapter 9, verse 51 through 1927. Jesus is traveling towards Jerusalem. As he's on his way to Jerusalem, he tells 10 parables that are not in the other gospels. And these 10 parables are actually in Samaria. And Jesus goes right through Samaria because all people matter to God. All people matter to God. In the Jerusalem Jews, the Jewish people from Jerusalem, they avoided Samaria. They would go around 
around Samaria. They did not like the Samaritans. They had terrorist attacks against the Samaritans. The Samaritans had a terrorist attacks against the Jerusalem Jews, but not Jesus. Jesus did not avoid Samaria. He went right through it. And that's the context. That's where we're at right now. Jesus cared about the down and out. Jesus cared about the people that nobody else cared about. And I love it in Luke chapter uh, 10, verses 25 through 37, we have the parable of the good Samaritan. They would have never been able to think about a good Samaritan. Jesus is in Samaria. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious authorities, the Jerusalem Jewish people are following him along. And he makes a Samaritan the good guy. It's powerful. And then we have the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, 11 through 32. And eight other parables that Jesus tells right in Samaria. I don't know if he's still specifically in Samaria right now, but he's, he, he is traveling through Samaria in the, con, the broader context right here. And so we come to Luke 13, verse 1, and we have the question. If you look at verse 1, there were some present at that very time who told Jesus, told him, that's Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. There are some people present at this very time at the context, which is what's going on. And they told Jesus about these, the Galileans. So the Galileans is a, is a cultural group of Jews. Jesus is kind of from Galilee. And the Galileans, it says the pilots, um, Pilate had mixed their blood with their sacrifices. And so some of the people are present. They're telling Jesus about, about what had happened. These people were present. This means they were present from the previous chapter and the teaching Jesus was doing. So that is connecting Luke chapter 13 with Luke chapter 12. And I know exactly what you're thinking. What is going on right here in context is Luke is narrating his gospel, the gospel according to Luke. And as he's narrating, he finishes Luke chapter 12 and he Excuse me. He ends that chapter and he says to himself, it's time for me to start a new chapter. And then he writes Luke chapter 13, verse one. No, he did not do any of that. This is all this is all contextual. This all put together chapters and verses make it easier for us to read and study the Bible. But also they cause a difficulty. Oftentimes we take things out of context. So we have to put it in context. This is on in the context of this road to Jerusalem, the road to Jerusalem and these people were present from the previous, the previous narrative where Jesus was teaching and he's talking about settling with accusers and interpreting the times and many different things. And these people were present and now they're asking Jesus about this event. Something had happened. You know, I wonder because it doesn't say whether Jesus knew about this event or not. It says there were some people who were present who uh, and and they were at the very time, and they tell Jesus, they're telling Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. I wonder, did Jesus know what was going on? Had, had maybe he got, maybe he saw the, about this event on his Twitter feed, or maybe he got a push alert on his cell phone, or maybe one of those other news alerts that maybe we get annoyed by. Maybe it was, maybe it was something shared on a podcast he liked to listen to, or his news source. Uh, of course, we know that they didn't have any of that back then. They did have town criers, and they did have ways of communicating news. So I just wonder, using my spiritual imagination, did, had Jesus already known about this event? Now, Jesus as God in the flesh, this is a can of worms, but Jesus as God in the flesh is omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. He's still fully God, yet he 
he's, he's also fully human. So he, for this period of time, did not necessarily know all things as a human being. So did he really know about this or was this a surprise to him? They share about this. They share about it. Did word get around? So there were these Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with the sacrifices. Uh, we don't really know anything about this event. We know that Pilate was a cruel man. He was a cruel man. One source reads, it is not read, one, yeah, one source reads, it is not known why Pontius Pilate killed the Galileans mentioned here. The mention of their sacrifices specifies that their deaths took place in the temple area, probably in relation to a major religious festival when all Jewish men were required to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. But we don't really know anything else about this event. R.C. Sproul shares, we can guess, however, what happened. We can guess what happened. Some Galilean pilgrims in Jerusalem, uh, they're in Jerusalem to offer their sacred sacrifices at the altar. And they were killed by Pilate, either directly or through his soldiers. The narrative includes the ghastly detail that their own blood was mixed with the blood from the other animal sacrifices. This was a particular heinous offense. Indeed, it was sacrilege. So the question that these people are asking Jesus is understandable. Look at Jesus' answer. We all must repent. Look at verses 2 through 5, verse 2. And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? So we have the first example, those Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled versus the other Galileans. You know, in John chapter 9, verse 2, which we're going to come back to in a little bit, the disciples ask Jesus, who sinned, the man born blind or his parents? And that was a fallacy of logic called the false dilemma or the either or fallacy. Behind the question in John chapter 9 is that suffering is related to sin. People still think that way today, don't we? We still can make sense in our mind of suffering better if we can connect it with some sort of sin that they were involved in. And ultimately, all suffering is because of sin in general. Going back to Genesis 3, we live in a fallen world. We're affected by our own sin and the sins of others around us. But here Jesus is saying that everyone must repent. No one is innocent before God. Everyone must repent. No one is innocent before God. Jesus is responding that they are all sinners. Regardless of their suffering or punishment, they all need salvation. We all need salvation. John Piper was writing on a message by R.C. Sproul based on this text. And John Piper shares... He says, then R.C. R.C. Sproul made a devastating, jolting observation. He said that these crowds who were so amazed that some people had been judged for their sin had put their amazement entirely in the wrong place. A misplaced locus of amazement. They were amazed that something horrible had happened to a few Galileans. What they should have been amazed at was that something equally Horrible hasn't happened to everybody in Jerusalem. Indeed, everybody in the world. You ever think about it that way? Why doesn't something horrible happen to every single one of us? Why does it only happen to a few? 
In verse three, Jesus responds. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus takes the focus off of that one incident and puts the focus on everyone. He makes a broader application here. We all need to repent for our sins or we all will perish eternally. Now, we're going to come to some specific ways to get help and support. And we are having some cognitive dissonance or emotional issues with suffering. But this is how Jesus responds to that very question. The suffering of the innocent, he goes right to the source. He says, we all need a savior. Why aren't we all suffering in similar ways? Jesus is saying that no one is innocent in the eyes of God. No one. We all ultimately face hardship because of the sin problem in the world. All of us. We all need salvation. If we all got what we deserved, it would be God's wrath. Technically, it's because of God's grace. We just say his mercy is more because of his grace and his mercy that we are alive right now. Every single one of our sins is a, is, is a violation of God's holy standard. Every, every single one of our sins, even those white lies, is high treason against God Almighty. Most of us don't think of it that way because we don't have as such a big view of God. But he is holy and righteous and pure and perfect. And, and, and he will be totally just to strike us down with the first sin. We're going back. He'd been totally just to end humanity in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sinned. It is his mercy and his grace that he allows us to keep going. Then Jesus gives a second example. Those on whom the tower in Siloam fell. Look at verse 4. Jesus continues, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. This is natural evil. So we looked at moral evil, which was Pilate killing people. Now this is natural evil. And those are the natural evil is the biggest conundrum that I wrestle with and read about and study to get better answers for. And now Jesus is directly addressing natural evil. Those 18 on whom this tower fell and killed them. Jesus says, do you think they were worse offenders? Worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? It fell and killed people. Jesus is saying they were not worse offenders. They were no worse than everyone else. They were not suffering because of their sin. I mean, they were ultimately, we all suffer because of our sin. They were ultimately because of original sin. But they were not getting what they deserved, so to speak. Look at verse five. Jesus says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus is pointing back to the greater need. We all must repent. R.C. Sproul shares, Jesus is saying, we should really ask why these bad things don't happen to me and everyone. What's amazing is not the justice of God, but the grace of God. The grace of God. These 18 innocent people weren't worse, but why didn't the temple fall on my head? We can never see tragedy and act of injustice because God is just and God is giving his mercy and grace every single day that we live. The only antidote to perishing at the hands of God is repentance. Uh, Jonathan Edwards once asked his congregation, Jonathan Edwards was a Puritan preacher in the 1700s. Pretty much all theologians across the spectrum would say he's one of the greatest minds of, of American history. And Jonathan Edwards once asked his congregation to give him one reason why God hadn't destroyed them since they got up that morning. 
He asked him to consider that every moment that we live, every luxury that we enjoy, every blessing that we participate in is a matter of receiving the grace of God. That it represents God's willingness to be patient with a race of people who have rebelled against him. God has called every human being to perfection. We are not allowed to sin. The penalty for sin is death. And yet we continue to sin and become astonished and offended when God allows suffering. Every moment that we live is the grace of God. So how do we make sense of the death of the innocent? Jesus answers the ultimate question, which is we all need a savior. We all need to repent. And he also answered it a different way. They're questioning why the temple, why the, the tower in Saloon fell on these, these 18 people when they should be asking, why didn't it fall on all of our heads? Why hasn't God destroyed every one of us? But how do we go on from here? In this account, people thought there was a relationship between the degree of, of the sin one commits and the degree of suffering. And Jesus responds that that is not true. There is not a relationship between the degree of sin one commits and the degree of suffering. I know oftentimes when somebody's driving recklessly around us and passes us on the highway and they're just driving crazy, we hope that we turn around, that turn the corner and see them pulled over by a highway patrolman, don't we? We hope that, but it doesn't always work that way. <laughs> there is not always a relationship. The innocent do suffer. But ultimately, or the innocent in our eyes, I should say that, the innocent in our eyes do suffer. But ultimately, Jesus is saying, no one is innocent before God. No one is innocent before God. Jesus addressed this in John chapter nine. I referenced that a little bit. In John chapter nine, verse three, Jesus shares, it was not that this man sinned, the man born blind, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. He had been born blind for the glory of God. God made him to be born blind. This is R.C. Sproul right here. It's not me. God made him to be born blind for his glory. He endured his pain for the moment. And then for all eternity, he had the unimpeded vision of the panorama of the glory of God. You ever think about that? The man born blind went through the suffering of being blind. And that is kind of easy for us to talk about right here. But he did witness and take part in this awesome miracle of Jesus where Jesus touched him and healed him. And for all eternity, we're talking about it today. He got to experience this miracle. He got to experience and testify to this amazing miracle. R.C. Sproul shares, philosopher John Stuart Mill posed one of the most famous arguments against Christian theism. It goes like this. Christians claim that God is good and that he is omnipotent. But these things cannot both be true. This is, not what, this is what this philosopher says. These things both cannot be true, that God is good and that he's omnipotent. These things both can't be true, not with all the pain, suffering, and tragedy there is in the world. If God is good, he would see all the pain and all the suffering, and he would surely eliminate it unless he were unable to. If he wanted to get rid of pain and suffering, but he can't, then he's not omnipotent. And if he's omnipotent and doesn't rid the world of pain and suffering, then he's not good. That's what this secular philosopher said. God cannot be good because of pain and suffering, or he can be good, but then he's not omnipotent. But Mill overlooked two salient points that were not part of his thinking. Namely, the holiness of God and the sinfulness of human beings. If God is holy and we are sinful, 
There must be pain and sorrow in this world until, until, until all is, all is redeemed. Jesus, however, understood the struggle that these people were having regarding this tragic event. And he gave an answer to their question. The scriptures make clear that all of us from time to time are victims of injustice. And all of us at one time or another have injured others unfairly and unjustly. When we we experience injustice at the hands of men, Jesus tells us we ought not faint but ought to pray. For he said, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? God promises to make right those injustices that we have either committed or received from others. But not once, not once have we ever received an injustice from the hands of God. We have never been treated unfairly or unjustly by God. Many times we compromise the holiness of God, the awesomeness of God, and also the grace of God. R.C. Sproul shares, I taught theology for more than 50 years. And I've heard literally thousands of questions from students asking about difficult theological questions. One I hear often is closely related to what is dealt with here. Why did God allow this to happen? People ask, why did my baby die or why did my husband die? And those are right, those are right questions. He says, I get that kind of question all the time. Do you know the question I'm, I almost never hear? Why did God save me? That's the biggest theological question, the biggest mystery. Why did God save me? Why did God save us? Why did God intervene? There are different views of suffering from different religious worldviews throughout history. The ascetic view of suffering is that suffering is not real. The stoic view of suffering is have a stiff upper lip, have a stiff upper lip. Just, you know, have a stiff upper lip and and toughen up. The hedonist, the Epicureans would say, live for pleasure, maximize pleasure. First Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. So that'd be the, the hedonist view of suffering. And then we have the Christian view. Suffering for the Christian view is never futile. The Christian faith, the Christian faith is, is born in suffering. Jesus said we will have suffering. Grief is right and it's a legitimate human emotion. It is right to mourn the loss of a loved one. From the broader Christian view, tribulation works patience. And patience works character. Turn to Romans chapter 5 verse 3 and you can see that. And time and time again we see that when we have everything we want and everything we need, we do not follow God. We turn from God. So God allows and permits all things, and we don't ultimately know why, do we? Unless we can point back to maybe something that that we actually intentionally did and we're really getting what we deserve. But God allows us or causes all things, and we do know that God is good. God is loving. God is just. And he will have a good outcome. The evil we face in this world is a reminder that things are not as they should be. They're not as they should be. I believe we face these things because God is using them to woo us to him. 
God is using them to woo us to him. C.S. Lewis wrote, We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It is, isn't it? Many of you can give testimonies more than I, though I can give testimonies of things I've seen and witnessed and taken part in and some of what we've experienced personally and uh, dealing with disability and this life and things like that. And also reading Johnny Erickson Tata every single day as I read her every single day and listen to her frequently. But we know that God is constantly drawing us to him. There's something called the butterfly effect. It's got a real term. It's a philosophical term from centuries ago. And the term goes back to the idea that, that a butterfly can flap its wings in the Sahara Desert, and that will lead to a hurricane in some place else in the world. And it's philosophers kind of debate, you know, how one little, little tiny little thing can lead to a, a greater thing. And if you study history, we do see sometimes how many small little trivial things lead to many times greater things. And ultimately, we just cannot answer what God is doing in taking the things that we experience and lead, leading to a greater good. Maybe sometime when we're in heaven, we'll know. Maybe sometime in this life, we'll know. I know of somebody who 25 years ago we were praying for her. She, she got esophageal cancer, esophageal cancer. Um, actually, I believe it was her husband that got it. And a few weeks before this diagnosis, she was praying with a friend for her children who had strayed from God. And she prayed, Lord, no matter what, bring them back to you. One of them got sick. And the children came back to the Lord. Honestly, as I've shared earlier, I've wrestled with this. I really have. I, I wrestle with the sufferings of the innocent. Now, understanding, understanding that ultimately there are no innocent people. Ultimately, the question is, why aren't we all suffering the same way except by the grace and mercy of God? But uh, it's much easier to make sense of the suffering of a terrorist and a child, isn't it? number of years ago, I was really struggling with this, and, and I researched it. I, I listened to four messages, which I could share with you. Uh, they're free online from philosopher William Lane Craig. William Lane Craig is a Christian philosopher and theologian, and uh, he was speaking and teaching on this, and, and he has spoken and taught on this many, many, many times, many, many hours of teaching. And I have about four hours that I could share with any of you. I believe it's even transcribed. And at the end, I did not get better answers, but I was able to, to renew the answers I've had. Interestingly enough, though, none of the other religions have better answers for suffering. None of them. The Christian worldview has the best answer for suffering. It all goes back to original sin. And God is going to, and, and free will today. God did not want us to be robots. God could have pre programmed us. He did a little bit. If you study DNA, it's, it's pretty amazing. God could have pre-programmed us to 
worship him. I saw a pastor once and he got a, a cassette tape. I don't think many people use cassette tapes anymore. I don't, but he got a cassette tape and he programmed it to, to, to worship him. <laughs> Just as a sermon illustration to say, oh, Don, you are wonderful. Oh, Don, you are amazing. Oh, Don, I thank, I thank God every day for you. You know, God, God wanted us to have free will, to freely choose to follow him. And many times that free will is used for bad. And God limits the free will probably way more than we even realize. Because of free will going all the way back to Genesis 3, because of sin entering the world going all the way back to Genesis 3, we live in a fallen world. When Adam and Eve sinned, suffering entered the world. Sickness and illness and death entered the world. And God is someday going to make it right. To the Eastern religions, the answer to suffering is karma. Karma. The people suffer because they were bad in a previous life. Their caste system and reincarnation is wrapped into their belief in karma. That's why Mother Teresa had such a phenomenal ministry. Nobody else would care for these people, but she would because of her Christian background. Because of her Christian worldview, she would step in and she would help the people suffering. The people in those Eastern religions would not help because they were getting what they deserve because of a past life. We joke about karma in America. They do not joke about it. They are stuck in a system of reincarnation and karma. Whatever mistake they make in this life, they will suffer for it in the next life. And because the Christian worldview, Mother Teresa would help people. And because the Christian worldview, many, 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 many other nameless Christians are helping people all over the world when no one else will. And maybe that's one reason why God allows the suffering so they can be blessed and others blessed at the same time. Christianity is the best answer. Why do the innocent suffer? No one is innocent. We are all sinners. We are victims of the sins of others. We are victims of our own sins. We are victims of being in a fallen world. And we are asking questions that we cannot specifically answer. God is good. God is able to take something bad and use it for the good. You know, in Genesis 50, verse 20, I read this just this morning. In Genesis 50, verse 20, Jacob had died. And Joseph's brothers were concerned that now that Father Jacob, renamed Israel, is dead, he is going to get back at them because they sold him into slavery. Joseph's a better man than that. That'd be really hard not to get, you know, 17 years he suffered. But Joseph looked at his brothers. He caught wind of this. And he said, don't don't worry about it. He said what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God is good. He's able to take something bad and use it for the good. You know, I want to say another thing about this, the suffering of children or or really anyone. I am convinced, I am convinced, you know, when we look at somebody, a child, for example, dying, which is just tragic, right? Or we think of it as tragic. I'm convinced that God is able to take them to heaven and I believe a child that dies does go right to heaven and he's able to spare them of a lot of suffering for the rest of their life. God and his goodness is able to do that. And I'm convinced that for really anyone, 
that anyone in Christ absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And when somebody dies young, if, if, if they're in Christ, if they're a child, they're, I don't think they can be held accountable for those actions yet or for a trust in Jesus. So God takes them right to be with him in heaven. One of the questions we get a lot, I get a lot, I'm sure Bill and Bob Cobell and anybody who served as a pastor get a lot is, what, what about these wars in the Old Testament and women and children suffering and children dying? I believe God took them right to heaven and they were spared future suffering. From the biblical worldview, we have creation, Genesis chapters one and two. Everything is created good. We have the fall in Genesis three. The world fell, sin entered the world. And ever since then, we've had sickness and illness and and moral evil and natural evil and all kinds of other things. We do have redemption. We are redeemed right now, but we're not yet to the new heavens and new earth. Stick around for January. Bear with me till January because I'm gonna be preaching on the new heavens and new earth. I'm gonna be preaching on heaven and it's gonna be a great sermon series. And after that, I'm gonna be preaching on how God is, God is good and God loves you. But we live in a fallen world. Someday we can look forward to restoration. So just real briefly, what do we do? Read, memorize, meditate on, and listen to Romans chapter eight. When you're struggling with suffering and things like that, read and meditate and memorize all of God's word. But Romans 8 is an amazing chapter. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes. We don't necessarily know the good right now, but we know God's word right here in Romans 8, 20. This is God's word. This is the word of God says all things work together for good. We can trust that promise. Now, sometimes we have to change the channel in our head because we're changing, because the channel in our head is on something meditating on on really hard things, maybe that we are experiencing or others are, and we need to change that channel to Romans 8, 28. If we love God, there's no sense of suffering. We do not know why things happen the way they do, but we know God is a loving God with a purpose. He permits or causes all things. His goal is good. Romans 8, 22 For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now all of creation is waiting for redemption. All creation is suffering. Evil is a parasite. It lives off of the good. And someday God's gonna kill that parasite. Someday God will renew all things. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Read, memorize, meditate on these passages. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing the glory that is to be revealed to us. Also, I've not even begun to talk about different counseling or therapeutic things. Journaling is very helpful. Journal, get those thoughts out. Write, write, write in a journal like a prayer journal. Pray and journal, meditate on scripture, spend time in spiritual disciplines, talk to other Christians, let me help. I'm glad to talk to you. I'm also glad to refer you to, to a Christian counselor to help you. It's, it's grief and, and, and crying and that's a right response. Give yourself permission. It is okay to do that. But also remember these passages from Romans chapter eight. And remember Revelation 21 and 22. Someday God is gonna make all things new and all things right. He's gonna restore and redeem all things. John Erickson Todd hit her head when she dove into a lake and became paralyzed. Now she has a worldwide ministry for people who are challenged physically. 
Today, Johnny would tell you she wouldn't trade her experience for anything. I've heard her say that. Not personally, we don't, I don't have her cell phone number, but I have heard her on her radio program and in the articles that I read every day, I've heard her say that. I've heard her say, I thank God for my wheelchair. I've heard her say that someday when she gets to heaven, she's gonna run. And I thought, oh, she's gonna be excited to run, but she didn't. She said, I'm gonna run to the feet of Jesus. I'm gonna kneel down and worship him. She hasn't walked for a long time. I believe it's been 52 years now. But millions of people who are hurting physically are encouraged by the hope she gives because of the suffering she's had. Her testimony is that she would have never known, she would have never known that God could be so real to her had she not experienced pain. I've heard her say that a number of times. Before, during COVID-19, we sang, and I read the words, Do He Giveth More Grace, which is an old hymn. And that was written by somebody else in deep suffering, totally bedridden, dealing with intense pain. Isn't it amazing how God uses these things to draw us closer to him and for us to serve and help and support others? As Johnny Erickson taught, he gets wheelchairs all over the world. She's a private Facebook group just for people experiencing intense pain and they can share with one another. You know, God has used her in many ways through that. So how do we make sense of the death of the innocent, such as children or the... um, Supposing innocent, the, the simple answer is none of us are innocent. Secondly, the other simple answer is why aren't we all suffering the same ways? Thirdly, remember Romans eight twenty eight: God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him. What man and sin and fallenness meant for evil, God many times, ultimately all the time for the Christian, turns around and uses it for good. Pray and cling to God let him help you. Let's pray. Lord God, we address topics today that are so hard to address, hard to approach, hard to answer. In a way, questions too deep for us to answer at all. The only answer we really have is Luke 13, when Jesus, you were asked this question. Although we know Job asked many questions of you, and you spoke to him out of the world when in Job 38 through 42, but you never really answered his question. Never answered it. Oh, Lord God, I pray that you would help and support. There are many here right now, I'm sure, that are asking these questions for time to time, and, and we're just asking um, uh, for our own answers. There, 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 there are many, though, asking them because of the intense suffering that we go through. And I pray, Lord God, that you would give a special dose of your presence and help and support for them. We cry out to you for help. The ultimate help we all need is from the Holy Spirit. So we ask for the Holy Spirit to give special help to all those dealing with suffering. We may not ultimately get the answers that we desire, but we do know that you are with us always, which is a whole other point I could have got into. Lord Jesus, you are with us as Christians always. We are not alone. And in John chapter 16, you even said it's better that you go so that you can send the Holy Spirit to provide comfort and care and help. We praise you and thank you for that. I ask for your comfort and care now. In Jesus' name, amen.